Welcome to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories impacting our communities. I'm your host, Rasha Goel, and joining me today is a very special guest. She's a multi-talented individual, excelling in the fields of comedy, acting, social activism, and music. With her stand-up routines, she fearlessly tackles social and political issues, particularly those related to race and sexuality. Now, many of you may remember her from the ABC sitcom all-American girl in the 90s, which catapulted her into the world of stand-up comedy, where she's become a recognized and respected figure. Our guest talents have transcended the stage, encompassing diverse artistic realms. And in addition to her captivating performances, she has demonstrated her prowess as an author, delved into the realms of fashion and music, and even established her own clothing line. Her unwavering support for the LGBTQ plus rights has earned her accolades, and she's been recognized for her outstanding humanitarian efforts on behalf of women, Asian Americans, and the LGBT plus community. It is my honor to welcome the amazing Margaret Cho to Asian Pacific Voices Radio. Margaret, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. That's amazing. I've done a lot of things. I always forget. <laughs> yes, right? And so sometimes we have to yeah. be reminded. I mean, gosh, it's so incredible. I'm, I'm thinking in my head, what has Margaret not done, actually, as I as I was reading your bio get? <laughs> Laundry. I haven't done the dishes. I haven't made lunch yet. I haven't done a lot of things that need to get done around the house. There's a lot of gardening that needs to be done, but I've done a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of good things. Yes, you have. And, you know, I normally start up now. I'm going to actually come back and tackle your new tour, Life and Lifid, where you're celebrating where you're celebrating 40 years of your career as a stand-up comedian. So I find that very, very fascinating. But I'm going to go back to your roots real quick, because we normally like to ask our guests about their upbringing. And in your case, I understand you were born in San Francisco uh, to Korean parents. Your paternal grandfather was a soul-based Christian minister overseeing an orphanage. So given your strong foundation in the church and your upbringing, could you tell us a little bit about your early experiences as an Asian American in San Francisco and what inspired your interest to pursue a career in comedy? Well, I think what's really interesting about uh, my parents and my grandparents and religion is it has so little to do with religion and much more to do with connecting with other Korean immigrants in San Francisco. Because our church was um, the Kamni Gyohe, which was the big Korean church in Chinatown in San Francisco. And that's where all of the recently emigrated Koreans would meet each other. They would hang out. They had a banking system that was built out of the church. So a lot of their society was built over in America through the Korean church. So it has very little to do with religion. It's so interesting to think about it now in... um, the way that my family were, they were actually quite secular in their behavior and what the, all the things they did. You know, my parents had a gay bookstore in the seventies, which really? now I look at that as, yeah, it's such an incredible thing to have this Christian kind of like, um, foundation, but really it was never about Christianity. It really had to do with connecting socially with other immigrants. That's so interesting. And especially during that time, I think it was probably so pivotal for them. Now, 
As an Asian American comedian, can you tell us about the importance of representation in the comedy world? I know you have probably seen a lot of it evolve throughout the years uh, with your own experiences. And if you could even touch upon maybe some of the challenges that you faced, especially in the 90s. I think the challenges for me were always invisibility. You know, there were never any Asian Americans in the entertainment industry that I could look to other than people like Johnny Yoon, who was actually really great, people like um, Ming-Na Wen, um, you know, that then the film Joy Luck Club, Club came out with such a big deal, you know. So um, there, but there are relatively few Asian Americans in the enter- entertainment realm that I could look to. So I always got a lot of inspiration from Hong Kong films where, you know, you'd see Michelle Yeoh, who's always incredible to this day, incredible, and Chow Yun-Fat and all of the John Woo films. Um, that gave me a lot of excitement and comfort to see Asians on screen. Even though they were in Asia, it made me realize it existed. And so in comedy, one of the great things about it was that it was um, self-authored, self uh casted. I didn't have to wait for um, a producer or studio to put me in a film. I could just go on and do comedy. And um, it's really exciting now because there's so many Asian American comedians who are doing such great work that I can look at that and say, oh, that's actually part of my legacy because they saw me and were inspired. But what I, by what I was able to do and then went on to have incredible careers. Of course, people like Ali Wong, also a uh, Bay Area San Francisco comedian, incredible artist. Um, people like Ken Jeong, who I work with a lot. People like Joel Kim Booster, Bowen Yang, um, Ronnie Chang, I love. Um, so many great, great performers. And I'm so happy to be part of that legacy. And I, I find it so fascinating too, like as you were mentioning the names, the growth, the number of Asian Americans that are now in that arena, right? From when you first started. What's been so fascinating though to watch your journey is that um, your comedy has also been described as provocative and it's fearless. So how would you say that you navigate the fine line between pushing the boundaries, but still ensuring that your jokes are respectful and they're inclusive? I think that's the challenge. That's the challenge of every comedian now is to find that way to communicate truth without um, impeding others, the truth of others, without stepping on the truth of others. So that's really what it means to be truly intersectional. It's about being thoughtful about what you're saying and what you're doing and really understanding what comedy is because words are really important i think that that's what we're understanding now about this idea of canceling or cancel culture for jokes it that's there because we want society to be better more responsible about the way we use words and jokes are uh words on steroids in a sense because you're giving even more power to them because of this idea of the unexpected thought that comedy is a comedy is kind of like this revelation or an unexpected truth wrapped in these powerful words. And so it's just about being responsible and, and that's more intuition and also this need to continually educate yourself about nuance, nuance as an Asian American and where we fit in also nuance in society where we fit in. Um, it's, it's interesting. So, 
hopefully I'm like continuing to be like more educated about my choices and what I use to uh, like make a, a comedy act to really make sense to me. So it, it's something that is a constant work in progress, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do that work. You mentioned cancel culture. So I want to just quickly touch upon that. That Does it become difficult for you now as you are creating jokes or working? Because I do feel like that's that people are more sensitive around that. And then if you take that to another level of being an Asian American artist, like how that kind of falls into it as well. Do you feel like it does become a little bit more trickier or not really? That's just part of the educational awareness. I think it's just part of being thoughtful about what you're doing, you know, and to know like, oh, there has to be a context where this makes sense. And then knowing that your words can be taken out of context very easily too. So it's, uh, and you know, and I'm very much about like um, promoting my point of view, which is pretty progressive. You know, I'm feminist. I'm very much about uplifting unheard voices and unseen communities. And that relates to the trans community, the queer community that relates to other people of color that relates to anybody who feels like they're not heard by mainstream society or pushed down by white supremacy. And so these are things that I want to advance these ideas. So it's something that like, I want to be thoughtful about and it, it's almost as if we need to learn by doing too. So I'm uh, actively pursuing like how how can I figure out what that truth is by just trying and seeing and knowing that I'm intentionally trying to be um, thoughtful. So I think when your intentions are there, there you can move pretty easily throughout that. You know, it's only when we're acting out of ignorance or out of fear that it's a problem. So true. So true. And and speaking, as you were mentioning, you are a vocal advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. Talk to me about how you utilize your platform to address social issues and reform. Well, for me, it's just about visibility, you know, and to be included in this conversation of what are we, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to fight against homophobia? How are we going to make a stand against all of these things that are going on, especially right now with all of the anti-trans and anti-gay legislation happening, anti-drag legislation happening. You know, to me, it's absolutely bizarre and an outrage. And um, in in a way, you know, these kinds of things would be, you know, it's almost beneath you to protest, but you have to protest because it's like, so blatantly obvious that we need to speak out against it. So it's about um, making that voice heard. So the me, it's meaningful, you know, and, and especially during Pride Month, but all year, you know, it doesn't really, to me, it doesn't end with Pride Month just, just as Asian American, uh, you know, Pacific Islander History Month, it doesn't end in May. It keeps going. It's all um, inclusive. Like to me, it's a fight for what's right always. It's an ongoing thing, right? It's not just that mm-hmm. particular month that's dedicated to it. And it's so fun, interesting because a friend and I were talking about Pride Month too, that it, it's really sad that we're in 2023. And it almost feels like we're starting over again to fight for some of just 
the, the general rights that people should have um, when you think about how far movements have come. So thank you for, for talking about that as well. And, you know, I want to talk about some of the fun stuff you've done in your career. Of course, Fire Island recently, uh, the film that you co-starred in. And it's great because it sheds this experience of the LGBTQ plus Asian American community, which we don't often really get to see. So what was that experience like filming that? I was I had watched it. I thought this is just so silly and fun, and I, I enjoyed watching it. Oh, good. Thank you. We had a great time. We just really love each other. And I think it's a film that rings very true to life. The way that we portray these characters are actually the way that we interact with each other in life and the way that I am with Joel and with Bowen and Matt and everybody. You know, to me, it's like they're they're my kids. And I really I love that movie. I go to Fire Island pretty much every year, and I've been going there since 2008. My real allegiance, though, lies with Provincetown, which I've been going there since 1986. So that's where I really spend a lot of summers, many summers, over the many, many years. Um, but I, I just love Fire Island. I love the community, the culture there. It's um it's a really spiritual place. And so hopefully we'll get to make more movies. I think that it's just was such a popular film and you know, yeah. we uh, really loved that it was so successful. So hopefully we'll get to make more. I hope so too. I, I you know, I love the theme and maybe people weren't even familiar with Fire Island got to even learn more about it. So I thought it thought I thought it exposed people to a lot of different things. Um I'm going to jump back to your role on the ABC sitcom All American Girl. It did suffer, you know, it, it was a huge hit, but at the same time, it suffered a criticism from within the U.S. East Asian community over the perception of stereotyping. So then a few, year, few years later, you wrote about your struggles with All-American Girl um, in your first one-woman show. Also, um, I'm the one that I want, which won the New York Magazine's Performance of the Year Award and was named one of the great performances of the year by Entertainment Weekly. So I want to hear more about your journey and your experiences as an Asian American actress that worked on that show and then how it kind of um, impacted your career and perhaps even set the precedent of what a direction you were going into. Well, it was really a hard show to be on because it was um, something that I wasn't really used to. I was a nightclub comedian, a pretty raw, pretty edgy, and then having to try to transition into being um, on television at the eight o'clock hour, which is the family hour. So it was like I, I'd never really done like I did comedy about my family, but I'd never done family comedy. You know, so it was a very weird thing to be thrust into and but the most big was the biggest problem was that the the I was way too fat to be on camera that's what the 90s were telling me that that the network was really like the biggest problem in my career was the fact that I was overweight which I uh didn't even realize but I I I I I did I wasn't but I I mean I well I was in terms of television um and in terms of show business, if we think about like the icons of the day, you know, with, which is like Kate Moss and the heroine chic, that was kind of like the norm. I was at not that. that. And so, yeah, at the time. So and also thinking about like, well, what are Asian women supposed to look like? Well, that was not yeah. that either. Um, so it was um, really discouraging to try to figure that out. And then there was a lot of backlash within the 
Korean community in particular, because the last time they had seen any, any images of themselves was on the rooftop with rifles during the LA uprising for um, Rodney King. So they were so paranoid about their image and they had only seen me from my stand-up comedy, which was on HBO, which was incredibly uh, outre and risque and very much not the way they wanted to be portrayed. So I had a lot of problems within that community because I was not a man. Also, it's a very patriarchal culture, incredibly sexist. The fact that I was representing them was a huge problem because I was a woman. At that time, very vaguely lesbian. They couldn't really figure it out. All of these things were just um, things that were not in my favor in terms of gaining access within the Korean community at the time because they were just not willing to embrace that. Of course, that generation, they've died. I'm the elder now. <laughs> Unfortunately, they all got real they died they ate too much sodium they had they should have had the green top with the pico man <laughs> you know like they really ate too much sodium and they all died so as an elder i'm so welcoming to the younger generation of asian american comedians and entertainers because i know what it feels like to be really shunned by the older generation it's really lonely and really sad but I'm really, I really bend over backwards to try to be very, very welcoming to the youth. Um, for, cause for me, it was very, not that way at all. Um, but you know, after the show was canceled, it, it was really great because it forced me to go into stand up comedy full time in a way that I had never done before. And it really showed me that I had much more to offer as a comedian and I still do. Uh, and I'm still very grateful for that. And I'm able to do a lot of different things as an actor now, which is really meaningful. And so I'm grateful for the way that showbiz sort of like revealed itself to me in a lot of these perceived failures. And it made me really see, Oh, yes. I don't think that there is such a thing as failure because you know, you, you try and you go and you do things and things either, um, work out the way that you think they will, or they work out in a different way, but that, that we sort of doesn't like put the idea of failure on top of it as being an end. It's just another continuation. I love that you just said that, especially for people who work in our industry. Um, I think that is so important. You know, as you were talking, I, I introduced you saying the amazing, and I don't take that lightheartedly because I find you to be a trailblazer as well. And I'm just thinking, Margaret, as you are going through this, you're, you're, you're dealing against with all these things from the community as well as the Hollywood community, whether it's being not Asian enough, you know, being um, fat, being this, being that. how did you mentally persevere? Because here you are today standing tall, uh, respected, adored. We, you know, we love your work still so much. How did you mentally persevere through all of this? What kept you going? Well, I, well you know, not the best. Um, I wasn't the best. Like I, I did a lot of damage uh, in my life because, uh, you know, I was so frustrated with my career and my goals and not achieving them. And to cope with it, I did a lot of 
bad things for myself. I drank a lot of alcohol. I did a lot of drugs. I had a really destructive relationships and these things did not help me. And now finally to be on the other side of that is great relief. There's not, um, any way that you can, um, really cope with life when you're just thrown all these things and you don't know. And I, it, it takes time to really understand what you need. So now I have like quite a long practice of things that I do to have my mental health in check. Like I, I need quite a lot of things to do that, which is great, but it took me like almost 45 years to figure that out. Um, it, it's, it's a, a long process, you know, it's, uh, I think that for Asian Americans, a lot of the times we don't seek mental health treatment and that's a great, di- you know, disservice to our community that we don't have that. There's a lot of stigma attached to that. And, um, to break free of that stigma is really, really important because I was in this very destructive cycle, but it's, uh, now I'm very free from it and it's really good, but it took me a long time. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that's also very important for our community to hear. Could you share one or two things that you found out about yourself that you do do to find that peace or to create that grounding for yourself? Well, for me, it's about meditation. Like, and I, I realize like that's all of, uh, what my family was doing is that actually like in that they were less Christian and more about social activity, but they always embraced meditation. Like everybody in my family always did that. And I never really figured it out, like what that was about. And, um, I have now embraced that, you know, in the last several years, I have a very, very heavy meditation practice out of necessity because it's like, that's my treatment. That's like my medicine. And that's what I need. And I, there's a long family history for it, but like, I never paid attention to it because I thought, oh, that's them. They, they just do that. But now I realize, oh, it's something that we need to do as a family, not necessarily together, but just as we have this specific set of complications that are kind of generational, whether that's trauma or just, you know, genetic, but it's helped everybody in my family. I don't know. It took me a long time to adopt it. Well, you're talking to a fellow practitioner as well. So um, I'm all about the meditation every day too. I want to jump and talk to you really yeah. quick about, um, <laughs> it's, I can't start my day or end my day without it, Margaret. It's, it's such a huge part of it. Yeah. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Um, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or stereotypes about Asian Americans that you have encountered? And then how do you address that into your comedy? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that we won't fight back. And I think that's a really dangerous one because we do fight back, you know, that we have to fight back or that, um, we're somehow uh, the more complacent minority in that like idea of the model minority. We're not. We're not. And we we have to make sure that we're not, you know, because we sort of tell this lie to ourselves that we are complacent and that we don't take action. But I think that um, it's really important that we do continually and keep it up. Like I was really impressed by after like all of the hate crimes during the pandemic, how much um, leverage that we all had to sort of get together and really fight this 
racism that was going on and create so much awareness around it. So I think that's an example of us fighting back. And I think also the the emergence of so much Asian American media in television and movies and music and all over culture, we're not being complacent there. We're fighting back with being visible. So the, that is the, probably the, the most dangerous thing is the invisibility or the continual acceptance of the invisibility. But that's definitely changing. Well, we're here to stay now, right? And I think we have many yeah. of us that are banding together um, to voice our, you know, voice our thoughts, voice. Our, and I think it's our communities too. We have, we have such a widespread community, um, mm-hmm. that really is, has, has had an impact just on American life in general as well. So I think we can't overlook our contra- um, our contributions as well to this country and to the world in general. Um, I'm going to have some yes. fun questions. I know I've hit you up with a lot of serious things. So what's, what would you say, what's the funniest heckler encounter that you've had during a live show? And then how did you handle it? Oh, I haven't, you know what? It's weird because I haven't really had that many experiences with hecklers. I think that I've been fortunate in that people don't want to try. Also, like <laughs> I'm very, um, if I, if it happens, like I just, it, it it's so rare. It's really it shocks me, you know, and I, then I have questions for them. So there really isn't that opportunity where it happens. I, I just find, um, for some reason people don't want to do that, but you know, of course it's always possible, but I haven't, I haven't really had an experience that I can point to, to say, Oh, this was really meaningful, but no, not, not too many. They don't want to mess with you, Margaret. <laughs> I guess. I'm not um, sure. What about an embarrassing moment that maybe you had on stage, but then you were able to find a way to turn it into something that was more comedic? Oh, well, no, I've had really bad ones. Like I uh, have like tried to pull the microphone out of the stand and like hit my face and started bleeding, like all blood all over my face. Like <laughs> keep going, just keep going. You just keep going. Um, I've had, uh, I had diarrhea and keep, <laughs> keep going. I just walk backwards. I, it's awful. It's, I've had really bad, I've had really bad stage accidents where I've really gotten super sick and I just had to keep going. You just keep going for some reason it keeps going. It's all, all okay. So yeah, I've had some pretty disgusting things as I've performed so much over the years. Maybe that's why I don't have hecklers. I have diarrhea. I don't know. Wait, so you managed to stay on stage this entire time while dealing with that stomach situation? Yes. And got a standing ovation. And But I walked out backwards and I was wearing all white. It was really, really oh bizarre. Um, yeah. That's epic. That is epic. Um, now, if you wanted to create a comedy duo with a celebrity, who would you choose? And um, what would your comedic style be like? I would love to do one with Sherry Cola. She's like my daughter, you know, like, and I think of her just as like, she's just so beautiful and so funny. And just to me, it's like actually very, there's something very similar vibe wise. So I think we could do like a mother daughter. It could be very, I don't know, Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli kind of a thing. It was very similar. It'd be very cute. That would, that would be fun. Um, what, what's coming up ahead for you? I, of course, tell us about the tour and any other upcoming projects that you're excited about. 
I'm on tour. I, um, I'm on tour all over. Um, the show is called Live and Livid, and it's celebrating 40 years of being a comedian. And I'm going everywhere, and it's really it's incredible. It's a real journey. Um, but I, uh, I really love it. I love live performance, and for me, it's just so incredible to get out and do it on this scale again. And um, really, really special. And then I just uh, finished a film um, called All That We Love by an amazing uh, director named Yen Tan, who's so awesome. And so it's a, it's a film that I, I really, really love. And, um, and then later this summer, I'll be doing Sherry Cola's film, which is really, really cool. So there's a lot of stuff happening, and um, I'm really pleased about it. I love that. So you've, you've got your hands everywhere. You've got um, the podcast. Was there a po- I read that a possible podcast with Fire Island as well. Oh, yeah, that's coming out now, too. That's just one that I'm a part of. Um, it's just documenting the history of it that I, I did that with Joel uh, Kim Booster. And um, it's it's a yeah, it's a really cool thing. It's just about people that, you know, that were there and, you know, people that go there now. It's it's really special. Fun. And what about your music and fashion too? How have those creative endeavors lent themselves to part of your career? Well, I'm retired from fashion. Uh, although I'm still very like, cause now I think that it's very important to not shop, but we have to just wear what we have or only buy vintage or only buy used. So there's about Ooh. not creating anything else. Um, so this, that's my sort of idea about fashion is to be so sustainable now and not add any more to what's already created. So create from what we have is my personal project. So that's kind of that, the, like when you redo things and look back and I've kept everything that I've ever worn or purchased in the last 40 years or whatever. Wow. And so now it's about taking all of that and reinventing. I've got outfits from from my, from my teenage years, from almost, yeah, like everything is sort of there still. So like I have all of the coats, like my family all had fur coats. I don't wear fur, but I had them, um, all taken apart and made into bedding. So now I have like throws that were all of my aunts and my grandparents, like grandmother's fur everywhere. And so they're all kind of furniture items. There's, I don't throw anything away. So just like reinventing, um, and reusing things that may end up in a landfill. So everything gets reused and redone. Um, music wise, I'm writing, um, music for a film that is being made of my song that I was working with, um, Leslie Jordan before he passed away. I've been working on this film with him for many years. It's called Ron. And, uh, unfortunately Leslie passed away and so now I'm making the film with uh, John Cameron Mitchell, who's so incredible. So I'm writing some more songs for that. Um, but it's a film that's made from a song that I wrote, which is always like, that's always really special. I love like the idea of that. So to me, it's a really exciting endeavor. Oh, that'll be cool to look out for. And is that going to be coming out next year? That Yeah, we're, um, we're going to shoot it later this year. And so it'll be uh, probably the following year. Yes. All right. And what advice do you have for aspiring comedians, especially those from marginalized communities who really are looking to make their mark in the industry? That we need you, that we need your voice, that it's, it just, um, it's, uh, it's so important to, to just do it and, you know, don't worry too much about it. Don't think too much about it. Just do it. It's, it's all like, uh, 
welcome. You know, all of it is welcome. We need all of your voices. Margaret, I'm going to end by asking you, because we were, we were talking about just your incredible career. What legacy do you hope to leave behind as a comedian and as an advocate for Asian Americans and the LGBTQ plus community? Well, I hope my legacy is that we, you know, we got to do it because somebody was brave enough to get there first and show that it was possible. Like, you know, it's not even that I'm that good. It's just that I was able to inspire so many people. So that makes me amazing. So that's what I, I really am proud of. I think, yeah, like you, you were the, you were one of the pioneers between all this work that you're doing. What does Margaret Cho do for fun? Well, I have many cats. I have a dog here who's sleeping right here. I have a huge um, garden that is a lot. I have a lot of plants. I have a lot. I mean, to me, it's like just sustaining life in all of its forms all over. I have a very big social life. I have a very big um, meditation life. Um, Mm. So they're, they're in, you know, that my sort of meditation community and that that's a big part of it too. Um, And uh, yeah, I, I'm really active senior. Um, So you know, and then stand-up comedy takes up most of my time because I'm always out doing shows. And even if I'm shooting a movie or whatever, I'm out that night doing shows. So it's always a constant. Um, so yeah, it's good. It's so funny. You say senior, but I, that doesn't click in my head with you. I'm like, what senior? <laughs> Thank you. I'm 54. So I'll be a senior in one year. Maybe officially defined, but you know, not in our Asian American genes. Yeah, that's right. Is there anything else you want to add that maybe I didn't talk about or something you want to mention? No, I'm, I'm really, I think this is great. All right. Well, where can our audience find you? Could you share your website with us? People can find me and where I'm performing at margaretcho.com. And I also post on Margaret underscore Cho on Instagram and the Margaret Cho on TikTok, which I love too. That's quite a big pastime. And um, I'm on Twitter at Margaret Cho. Awesome. Well, Margaret, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you once again, ladies and gentlemen, you were listening to Margaret Cho. It's been an honor to have you here with us and make sure you do check out all the social media platforms you mentioned, including uh, the tour that is running. Now, I'd also like to hear from you, um, our valued listeners, about any suggestions that you may have regarding our guests or future topics. And don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our Asian and Pacific Islander communities with a voice through media arts. Now, if you'd like to support our programs, please do visit us at AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. I'm Rasha Goel. Thank you once again for listening to a thought-provoking Asian Pacific Voices Radio podcast, and I will see you next time.